Hi guys, it's Tim here. I just wanted to uh, do a brief introduction before the 13th and last episode of Agents of Hope podcast for series one. I just wanted to say to you guys, thank you so much for listening, for contributing, for talking about this on Twitter, to sharing it to other people. I mean, it's been an absolutely amazing um, experience to be able to uh, just have an idea that people would like to talk about hope and then and then find so many people who have educated me in so many different ways and and taken my thinking to, to really new new places far beyond what I ever thought that I, I would do um, when I started out on this in, in April and you know there's it's been in some ways a really torrid year in some ways it's been a really amazing year for me and um, I'm, I'm really happy to have met so many people on, along the way through hosting this podcast um, and and talk to them about their ideas and their, their aspirations and I've come out of this year strangely feeling really really hopeful um, about the future and the future um, of the profession which sounds like really kind of big thing to say and it does feel big um but you know essentially that's how how it feels and just kind of thinking back over the last 13 episodes obviously you're about to hear a, a new one and just thinking about you know the, the the first conversation I had with Joe which was like it was it was a shot in the dark really but it really felt like um meeting somebody um and having kind of shared mind on things and and talk about those things going forwards, and then to talk to to to, to Jagdish about a slow cooker systemic change, and that's really influenced how I I see my work and practice now. As has you know, name these ideas about co-production, and you know, given those really practical tools of one-page profiles to to work with. So that's been amazing, and you know. Yeah, and and then we kind of got a run from, from there, you know, where you know I spoke to, to Dr. Amelia Taylor, who I, who I work with, but I hadn't had the chance to talk about psychology with her, strangely enough, although we'd worked with each other for about two years at that point, and just talking to her about polyvagal theory and you know her view of resilience, and though it was different from mine, uh, just really kind of helpful and hopeful to think of things in that way, and to hear about theraplay and cycling and how those work, and then to you know come on to to be able to talk to, to mark adams you know really big player talking about coaching psychology and the role and it made me think again about things differently and really amazing um to to spend the conversations i had with him and mark uh, i really want to thank because he he spent a huge amount of time talking to me and and, and that episode is uh, a combination of four or five conversations rather than just one and then you know meeting Colin uh, to talk about PATH you know that really kind of um, increased my understanding of a tool that I already loved but also really opened my eyes to you know what really is being inclusive and um, what is kind of being person-centered and how does that fit with a role and again re real guiding for me um, and then you know Again, another person who spent a huge amount of time with me, you know, Dr. Duncan Gillard, talking about acceptance commitment therapy, and working through some things kind of live in the podcast. Um, that was really amazing. And and then talking to Dan, Dan O'Hare from DCP and South Gloucester and Bristol, 
uh, and talk about how we make this thing called education psychology uh, accessible to everybody. And somewhere in the middle of there, I was doing my Viva and these conversations really prepared me for that. Uh, and then talking to, to Dr. John McMullen about his work in, in Africa, with war affected children and thinking about how we look at that um, and how we kind of perceive our work and how psychology can help us be helpful whilst being minded of our, of, of our approach. And then talking to the amazing Southland EPS um, about the work that they've done during COVID-19 through relationships, innovation, and getting the views of children and putting it at the centre of their work, even when that's really difficult. So that those are kind of the amazing kind of spring and summer times. Then we moved on to the autumn where I talked to uh, Dr. Abby Wright about, you know, parenting in the early years um, and recentering our approach. And then to talk to, to, to Lucy Parr about her experiences of being a parent. Uh, of a child with special educational needs and what the challenges are there and the thinking how we can think about positive psychology and systemic resilience in the face of that and 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 today's episode with jeff uh, dr jeff morgan from bradford is a specialist senior educational psychologist just you know he, to talk about existentialism in a very very um approachable and accessible way in a way that makes me think about my experiences and uh, and and how I see my work, particularly with uh, young children who might uh, and teenagers who might be going through what we might see as a rebellious stage, and help our work to be meaningful and to think about how authentic um, we could be as EPs. So it's been amazing, you know, just to talk to all of those people, and you know, we've got. Um, guests lined up for series two which i'm really really excited about and it's just been an amazing year and you know if if you've listened to what any of these episodes and thought you know those eps are amazing please consider them you know if you're a member of the dcp for one of the dcp you know awards you know these people are you know putting themselves forwards and you know really innovating and, and really inspiring for for you know, me as a recently qualified, and I'm sure for, for, for the listeners as well. So, yeah, just, you know, I can only give gratitude to, to all the kind of my guests. And, and really, I want to give my gratitude to you as listeners um, for encouraging, as I said earlier, and um, I hope you're you know, enjoying Christmas in whatever way you can celebrate it. Um, and you're able to get some rest before kind of the next term, whatever that brings. Um, I'd also like to say thank you to my sponsor, uh, Beth and Eliza Proofreading. Uh, her offer still stands for 20% for off. If you want to uh, to find her, and she's in my bio. Um, so, and she specializes in, in work for educational psychologists and and trainee educational psychologist, or indeed aspiring educational psychologist. And yeah, so, you know, I, before I let you get on to, to, to the um, episode with, with Dr. Jeff Morgan, I, I just want to say thank you so much. I will look forward to hearing and seeing you with, with season two. And if there's any particular guests, please let me know at my Twitter handle, which is Tim C Education. 
Um, if you're interested in what I'm doing in the meantime, I'll be mostly resting, but I'm also going to be uh, speaking at the DCP TEP conference about my doctoral research, which is on the 13th of January. Um, you can sign up um, for that um, if you go to www.delegate-reg.co.uk forward slash TEP2021. Uh, and for slash register uh, and you can go there and there's a lot you know there's uh, Naomi Poswell's there uh, Sarah Wendland from Southend's there Rachel Mayrick's there she's going to be on season two um, uh, lots and lots and, I, I, and I'm on in the afternoon as well and Patrick Langford lo lots of great people there so you should do that um, if you're a tech or interested in that sort of thing or recently qualified um, but yeah Thank you so much, guys. Um, it's been inspirational um, to do the first season with you. And I will catch you in the spring. Okay, thank you. Enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome to episode 13 of the Agents of Hope podcast. I am Tim Cox, I am your host, and this is the final episode of series one of the podcast. It's been a really amazing uh, experience for me to be host for 13 of these episodes. And today I'm really happy to have Dr. Jeff Morgan with me, and we're going to be talking about uh, teenage rebellion and existentialism. Um, but before I kind of uh, start treading on toes and, and talking about things about, about Jeff, I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself, Jeff, and talk about a little bit how you came to be an educational psychologist and how and why you're interested in teenage rebellion. Okay, thanks, Tim. Uh, so, uh, yeah, how did I get to being a, a, an educational psychologist? Um, it, it's probably, I think, the, 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 the first kind of formative experience was that I didn't like school and for the vast majority of the time that I was at school, I really didn't like school. Mm. Unconventional sort of um, career, really. Um, uh, I left school at 16. Um, I worked in a supermarket. Mm -hmm. I got my A-levels and went to university. And then I did various sort of jobs which were kind of um, educational focused, but not necessarily all that conventional. So I taught guitar um uh, peripatetically mm -hmm. and um and at um um at a sort of uh post-16 academy of music and sound and um and i um um i did uh i worked in adaptive technology um for a while uh for children and adults with sort of um sort of very significant uh, physical disability largely but also um learning disability as well and um, and I did. Um, I worked as a, an outdoor instructor, and um, I did sort of like expedition leading, which sounds very grandiose, but it was mostly sort of um, sort of bimbling around various really remote places with with young adults, trying to stop them from hurting themselves too badly. Um, and so, and 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 I was kind of, I kind of reached a point in my life where I was a bit kind of like, I don't really know what to do. Mm. 
with myself. And um, the girl I was seeing at the time, um, um, I was in her, I was, I was staying with her for the weekend and she, she showed me this book called Educational Fa Failure and Working Class White Children in Britain by Gillian Evans, who's an educational anthropologist. My girlfriend at the time was, a, was, was, was doing a master's in anthropology and had this interest in educational anthropology um, in relation to sort of indigenous peoples. And she got this book, it was by her supervisor, Gillian Evans. And, um, and I read it in two, in two goes, which I've never done with a book in my life. It's not even a really long book. Um, and, um, but it just really kind of, it talked a lot about the sort of um, why education is, is an ethnographic study of um, ethnographic study of um, of the families of, of of children in in primary schools in Bermondsey in South London, which is an area that I'd actually sort of lived near, so I kind of some of it was quite familiar. Um, and um, and af af after that, I, I got really interested in, and then I kind of got really interested in educational psychology. And sort of around that time also, um, I, I was going through a bit of a bad patch, I'd say, to be honest, and wasn't, uh, wasn't, I was a bit, um, I was probably more than a bit down in the dumps and, 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 and having my own kind of, uh, I guess, make it sound grandiose, but sort of existential crisis. Mm. My dad lent me a book called Man's Search for Meaning. Yeah. Well, Frank, or you, you I, I guess you've, you've come across that. And, and that book really made me think very hard about what was, what was interesting, what was meaningful to me. And, and, and from that point onwards, I was certain that I wanted to be an educational psychologist. Mm. Uh, it just kind of clicked. But it, just everything kind of, I thought, this is what I want to do. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, there's lots of things about, I guess, um, your journey into being an EP that, really resonate with, with my experiences, and particularly the role in, in Frankel's work in, in shifting my kind of focus from uh, nothing is meaning to creating my own uh, meaning and, and, and following um, a, a career path which would, uh, you know, fill things with meaning rather than feeling that things were just disintegrating, decaying, all of the time and you know we spoke a little bit about kind of our kind of mutual love for music in the few minutes that we spoke to before uh, we came on air and, and you know it, the only other place that I'd really found that level of kind of meaning although it didn't really think music doesn't always put that pathway in front of you but you know, you know in the music I listened to as a teenager uh, and still sustains me now really um, you know, you get that real sense of, of, of meaning and, um, you know, to, to use a kind of Frankel term, kind of tragic optimism that life is difficult, but yeah. there is something transcendent about existence yeah. um, and you can yeah. find community in that. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 like, I like what you said there about uh, about the sort of moving from from the tragedy to the tragic optimism. So I think I think, you know, Frankel's position is very um, almost like anti-nihilist, mm. anti-nihilist position. It's kind of like, it's kind of like, it doesn't deny the awfulness or the po awful possibilities that are out there, but it, but it gives you a, 
it gives you an optimistic kind of framework or set of ideas to sort of move beyond that to say to accept those things but say those things are are um are, can be transcended it's 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 a very it's a very it's a very beautiful piece of work i think um mm. and um and it's very much and it's one that i come back to over and over again it's very accessible and i yeah. also really i really like how how direct and kind of almost cantankerous um frankel was you know yes. sometimes he would be like he would almost kind of which as a psychologist you would almost kind of avoid that level of kind of i suppose cantankerous is a bit of a a bit of a, a sort of the wrong way of putting it but he he, he was he was very potent he made very potent arguments he really kind of almost kind of like you know, brought people kind of kicking and screaming to their own kind of, uh, to their own kind of challenges, you know, challenged very, you know, challenged their hopelessness in a very kind of direct way, mm. um, which is, um, you know, uh, I, I, I really like that about him because I think, you know, not that, not to criticise a lot of the person-centred movement, but it's very, it, it sets itself apart from a lot of the other kind of person-centred um, therapeutic type writing that was around that was popular in the kind of the in the kind of post-war period um because of its kind of directness he talks at one about people not just having to say what needs to be said but also to hear what needs to be heard which i thought is very sort of very directive almost yeah, mm. yeah. I, I, well even the context in which it's it's written and thought up you know during his time in the concentration camp and you know, through I know you know through that book, you hear about you know the loss of his his wife and mm. observing you know disease ripping through th this concentration yeah. camp, and obviously the human brutality. But that kind of um, defiant, you know, you you will um, define the meaning in your life, or someone else will take it from you. Mm. Uh, and, and that you know. I, I came to Frankel at, at a big emotional low um, where, you know, my way of living had just it kept crashing and burning, essentially, um, in, in a way that had stopped being romantic and uh, interesting yeah. and, and had become just bloody annoying. It sounds very familiar, Tim. It, <laughs> yeah. it sounds so, very familiar. Yeah, so it was, you know, just... Uh, you know, I don't know if it's in there, but you know, one of the the big story, big lessons I learned from that book is, you know, if you are experiencing a loss of meaning from something, so at the time that was kind of depression and a, and, and a relation breakdown, um, you know, can you flip it? And if you flip it, you know, and say, okay, people, you know, you know, a white middle class male can experience you know, a complete loss of meaning and loss of joy and all of these things, uh, despite my privilege, you know, could I use my position actually and my experience of that to help other people who might be in similar situations and, and to be able to deal with that, that tragedy of life. And obviously things became more refined over time about how I might do that. And I was searching for a career path, which, which helped me to do that. Um, but it was certainly, you know, that, that lesson that either is in that text or just jumped out at me um, has sustained me for a very long time.
um, since since that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's got it, it. It's got a lot of staying power. You can dip back into it. it it's, it's also quite hard. I, I find it quite hard to be cynical about as well, um, because I almost feel like with with Frankel, you know, he almost does. You know, he almost has that kind of experiences in the concentration camp to kind of back on. You can never kind of, you can never kind of. Uh, it's very hard to question his authenticity. Mm. To question his authenticity, it's very hard to. Um, but he, he sort of he doesn't do that kind of. You know, there would be it would be easy for him to kind of really lay it on thick about how look at me, I was in a concentration camp and I managed to experience hope and come out of this a more hopeful person. But he doesn't really do that. He he shows compassion. He. He 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 really gets this idea that that there are external things that can make you unhappy, but that if your life is is directionless or meaningless, that that can make you really unhappy, even if outwardly it may appear quite comfortable or privileged. Um, it, it, it can still, you know, that that meaning is not necessarily a direct correlation of. Although I think that you know it's. I wouldn't want to say that there is always a risk of talking about meaning and existentialism and and, and sounding a little bit like a kind of, you know, product, you know, product of a Western affluent nation in, in the, in the late 20th, early 21st century. One of my, one of my kind of, you know, one of my kind of things that I occasionally sort of gripe about is Maslow's hierarchy of needs. This idea that if you're really poor, if you're really um, hungry, or if you that that you can't seek self-actualization, or uh, you can't seek a higher purpose, and I, I think that I, I would question, certainly experientially, I'd question the evidence for that that, 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 that is necessarily the case. I think. In, in a sort of an immediate situation, if you're immediately hungry, if it's a choice between self-actualization goals and making sure you eat on that day or in that very moment, I think perhaps. But, but the idea that people who are poor or under underprivileged aren't able to focus on meaning and self-actualization, I, I find problematic. Um, I, I find that I find that a problematic idea. Mm within psychology that's often used it's often used it's often trotted out this sort of when we talk about SEMH needs we talk about Maslow's hierarchy needs and say how can children focus on self-actualization goals if they're you know if their basic needs for safety and all the rest aren't met and I, and I think that there may be some truth in that but I think that that's sometimes I think we get it the wrong way around I, I think sometimes the reason these children um, behave or young adults or people behave in a particular way is because actually they don't experience a lot of self-actualization from what it is that they're doing day in day out and it is actually the self-actualization bit that they're missing um regardless of the fact that the basic needs aren't being met that, that, that if you're if you're not good at something and then you're being made to do it over and over and over and over again that's that has the potential to be very meaningless. Mm. Very meaningless. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, I, before I was a trade education psychologist and an EP, I worked in secondary schools as a head of head of year, and 
I think, you know, as children got to the end of their, uh, perhaps Key Stage 3 even, is that there was this real sense of uh, obligation without meaning. Mm. Uh, and that was the cause of um, some of the more rebellious behaviour, or I guess mm. uh, veering into different lifestyle choices, which weren't the the normed expectation of, of the school mm. or schools uh, that, yeah. I was, that I was working in. Um, so it's, it's, it's been something that's been quite apparent this sort of um well on one hand teenage rebellion but uh, you know underneath that it kind of it's not always just surface cliched we're teenagers this is what teenagers do in the movies there there's often quite a deep uh, meaningful sense of of why that's happening which often often well almost always isn't met by working yourself through a consequence system at a school no, no, I think I think um, particularly the consequences are sort of meaningless. So if they, if they aren't particularly meaningful, either positive or negative, they don't mean a lot. I mean, we you talked about sort of in your second question you talked that you sent me beforehand. You talked about what is existentialism mm. and why is it relevant to EPs. Um, it's that question, I think. I looked at that and I thought, oh, goodness me. I, I don't know whether I would consider myself an expert on existentialism at all. And actually, mm. I would argue that I don't think existentialism is, a, is about expertise anyway. No. I have this sort of impression of it as, as being, you know, lots of guys in kind of, uh, you know, smoking belvoirs and... Um, you know, in, in French cafes and using big long words, and we have this 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 sort of kind of image of it as as, as highbrow. But actually, my take on existentialism is is that it's not particularly sophisticated, um, yeah. difficult to understand. Um, and, and actually, I, I I would say that I'm not particularly big fan of reading. The works of, 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 of very well respected existential philosophers, um, because I, I sometimes wonder whether they're not actually saying something that's quite simple in a complicated way. So Heidegger being the probably the prime mm. example yeah. that, that he, you know, when he talks about things like das nicht or sein, but really he's just describing um, you know, he's just describing kind of fairly straightforward concepts experientially that anyone can kind of can introspect on or reflect on or see in other people on a day-to-day -day basis. But I think that what, why Heidegger is important, even though I wouldn't particularly choose to read Heidegger and inform my work, is that, that he tried to drag, you know, he, or he tried to drag, I think it's probably the one we're describing it, but he, he, he wanted to push philosophy away from this kind of very abstracted, very analytical way of looking at the world and to a more real and everyday thing. Um, and I, I wouldn't pretend to be an expert on those philosophers at all, but I, I, I do find, you know, I, I do find really that existentialism is, is about understanding the everyday, to me, it's about understanding the everyday meanings for people and that really somebody like Frankel is as important. Mm. It's, it's real and it's relatable to the experiences of 
him and the experiences, you know, when he talks about logotherapy, about his patients. Um, I also, have you come across Irvin D. Yalom? Yes, yes. I did a lot of reading of his, or, or listening to his audiobooks in preparation mm. for the course to find that it really wasn't similar to stuff on the course, but it really has sustained my understanding of development of the self, really. I think I think there's a phrase that Yalom uses, and I use it all the time, and anyone who's ever been supervised by me will be, if they're listening to this, will be chuckling now. They use this phrase, he uses this phrase, all is grist to the mill. Mm. And um, it's a phrase that my mother used to use a lot when I was a child, and I didn't really get what she was talking about. She'd say, oh, it's grist to the mill. Um, and what, what he means by that is that anything that happens to you you can learn something from mm. straightforward concept. It's not a high minded concept at all. For example, if you're in an interaction with a, a young person or a teacher, if something bad happens within that interaction, like that teacher gets annoyed with you, if you reflect or that kid tells you to fox the Oscar and disappears out of the room, you can reflect yeah. on that as an experience. If you're willing to be open to that experience, mm. Even though it's uncomfortable, you can reflect on the meaning of that experience for you and for that other person. Um, mm. and, you know, you can learn something about even the even the kind of the smallest of interactions, and that's one of the things I I, I, I really like about Yalom. I also like the fact that Yalom's quite he's quite funny as well, and he uses a lot. He's got a quite dry sense of humour, which I think yeah he uses humour. Um, uh, a lot to try and you know like gentle kind of slightly in psychotherapisty humor mm. kind of to kind of make his points and I, I like that because it makes it memorable and it sticks with you and i like that the art because he's, he's a good storyteller oh yes yeah, yeah and i think that the essence of existential psychology the things like storytelling and understanding um being able to give artful explanations is quite important within within existential thinking but it's not necessarily about kind of kind of creating the most correct analysis but creating the most meaningful analysis yeah which is so subtly different have you another writer that i've i've sort of a bit infatuated with if that's the right term is ian McGilchrist. have you ever come across him i haven't no no but no. Um, i have been yeah. told about him and told yeah He's a big fan of Heidegger, but he talks a lot about it from a neuropsychiatry perspective, which is really interesting. Mm. And he, he uses a lot of creativity and art and things like that to, to kind of um, to kind of get the message across about how that we, we're very focused on the kind of analytics and not necessarily the the kind of the bigger meaning. And, he, and I guess it's a, again it's a very simple concept. He talks about it in terms of uh, in the integration of left left hemisphere and right hemisphere. Mm. And about, and about how about how left hemisphere functioning is very much concerned with language description capturing something and he uses um, metaphors like holding it in aspect so it's essentially kind of not a living kind of thing but a kind of representation of the thing itself um, yeah. and um and and again it's sort of i think you know that in terms of analytic processes that you know when we engage in very sophisticated very abstract analytic processes Sometimes what we do is we we lose the essence of the thing we're trying to understand. So yeah, yeah 
the existential is not particularly sophisticated. It's more about having a deeper understanding and having a different meaning of what understanding means. So like, what does that mean to that person? Yeah. Or what does that, what, what, what does that represent to that person? And I think as EPs, one of the things that's really good is we're not necessarily constrained by, for example, you know, some of the tools and frameworks that might constrain other professionals. So we do have, we are at liberty to use things like, for example, personal construct psychology, which fits closely with, with that, that sort of approach of trying to understand what things mean to people. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, it's a, you know, I, I read some of Heidegger's stuff for my thesis and, and drew on his ideas about thrownness, uh, projection and everydayness and as the kind of you know that, those are every man existential terms for me it's just like you know we all have a sense that we're thrown into this life there's things yeah. that we can't control and, yeah. and, and lots of that will be tragic and some of that will be privileged but we can't always control that then there's the kind of our everyday experiences you know the things we have to be pragmatic about uh, but you know those relate to the thrownness and what we're projecting towards in our life, what we'd like to do, our kind of aspirations, our hopes, our dreams, and all those three concepts work together um, in developing your understanding of who you are and, and what's authentic uh, mm. in your life and what's useful uh, in your life. And I guess I came to it from struggling with the relativism of social construction uh, as a concept and say yes things are constructed in their meaning but there's something deeper than it just being relative because it's relative to somebody's existential understanding of the world what they might bring to consultation or what they might bring um to a piece of um ep work or or any educational um circumstances Uh, you know i think um working as a pastoral worker for, for a long time what I found was um some of the children that I worked with found that what they were being taught uh, really linked with their aspiration and their projection and what, how they were thrown into that secondary school environment and what their parents expected of them uh, particularly and though they tended to to stay the course and you know might flit at times but generally it fit with fit with their lifestyle and their existential kind of uh, trajectory, uh, whereas kind of uh, other uh, children uh, and young people, I, I kind of got distinct uh, in- intuitive feeling that, you know, it felt like banking education in terms of we were just filling up these children with knowledge, which we thought was useful, but actually in their lives wasn't particularly uh, useful. Can I talk to you a little bit about, um, can I just... Can I stray cautiously into the to the arenas of of um, uh, anthropology? Shall we say? Please, please anthropology, do. Uh, he says. Um, so one of the things I find really interesting about about schooling and compulsory schooling, and I, and I and I think the intentions, the, the social intentions behind compulsory schooling are are, are, are very noble. I'm I'm not. I don't want to, you know, one of the things I think that um, I think it's really important to convey that I, I have a tendency to be quite circumspect about lots of things. And, and, the, and, and compulsory education is something that I would describe myself as circumspect about rather than 
some for or against. But for the vast majority of human history, for the vast majority of the time that humans have been around, adolescence played an integral part to the destiny, to the fates, to the well-being and the um, successes or otherwise of their family and their community for the vast majority of human history. Now, I, you may ask me, you, you could ask me for evidence to back that up. Um, I, 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 I wouldn't have any other than what I've observed when I've been to countries overseas and what I've read about, you know, um, hunter-gatherer communities. Now, I'm not engaging in some, I, I'm not one of these people that wants to idealize how we live prior to agriculture or any of those kind of things. Um, but I'm just trying to illustrate something that, that for, a, for, for a long time within human history, adolescent, you know, we talk about adolescent rebellion as if it's a kind of a natural process that just happens. And sure, you know, breaking away and saying, I'm not like you, I'm different, I'm a person, um, um, it, it, it is definitely something that happens, you know, it, it, to, to a lot of people when they reach that age. Um, um, there's also people who say the opposite and they'll say, well, um, you know, the, teen, the idea of teenageness was invented in the 1950s, which I think is an interesting concept. But for the vast majority of human history, um, adolescents have been actively involved. Now, one of the things I observed, interestingly, when working as a, as a like outdoor education instructor was that whenever I got group, I'd work with groups of kids. And whenever I got groups of kids that came from, well, I worked in Australia for a while, from rural farming communities, they were just really different. They were really, really different. And um, one of the things I think is that what we say in society in a compulsory education system, a compulsory, compulsory education, if you say, you guys are not ready yet, you're not baked yet, you're not ready to participate or be an active contributor to this community, you go over here and you do this for however many years um, because you're not ready to be an active participant. A really interesting, uh, I was a case I was involved with a, a few years ago, which was um, where, um, you know, I did my solution focused questioning. And I said, this is a lad who had learning difficulties and he had, um, you know, his behavior was very challenging. Um, he was regularly out of lessons, wandering the corridors, smoking fags around the school, et cetera, et cetera. Classic mm. re rebel without a clue kind of situation <laughs> clues bad way of putting it but um, you know it was, he, he had it he had a clue that he didn't like what he was doing in school but he yeah. didn't know what he wanted to be doing um and um and i said are there any situations where you get you know more positive behavior from and they said yeah yeah every day we send him down to the kitchens just before lunch to help out and he's a gem you wouldn't see you, you don't he doesn't say boo to a goose and i thought well that's interesting isn't it and i actually went down and observed the kid in the kitchen and sure enough he was, he was, um, uh, and he was fine. And then I observed him in the lesson afterwards and he went missing and disappeared off for a fag. Um, so, you know, it was clear that this kid, you know, this gave him a sense of meaning. And mm -hmm. I, I, what I find difficult to answer is not that why do adolescents rebel against the education system, but why do so few rebel? Yes. The answer to that is, is that most of the kids, and you alluded to this earlier on, Tim, most of the kids who go to school, see a higher purpose for it. They see it as having some connection. They say, well, yeah, okay, I'm not an active participant within, within society yet, but I will be, and this will enable me to be a more active participant in society. Mm. Whereas 
if you're not academically skilled, if you're not good at sports, if you're not, um, you know, if you're not sort of uh, charming or well liked by the teachers or whatever, if you're not, if you don't have a particular role, you will try and find a role for yourself in that situation. Yeah. And and that role might be, you know, top rebel. That role might be chief disrupt disruptor in chief. That role might be a uh, class clown. Um, and and I think that one of the things that I find very interesting about our work is is quite often we we, we one of the things that I keep coming back to with existentialism is that we, we talk about people as if they're kind of like sometimes as if they're, and I say we, I'm talking about psychologists here, as if mm. they're like broken machines, mm-hmm. kind of systems that have gone wrong. And I'm not saying that, that existentialism explains everything or existential issues explains everything. I don't think that's true. But I do think you can actually explain a lot with when you extend the idea of meaning as far as it will go, you can explain a lot about why somebody, even autistic children with language impairments, you can explain a lot about why children don't behave because the situation they're in does not make sense to them. Yeah. Makes sense to them. And so they're either finding a way to make sense out of that situation, or alternatively, they're showing distress because the situation doesn't make any sense. Mm. And it's and it and it's you know, and I think that. It's really important for us as practitioners to get back to thinking about, you know, where we can get back to thinking about ideas of personhood and selfhood. And mm. I sometimes, yeah, like I say, we can think about people in medical terms as, as, as broken systems, but we can also, I think social constructivism can also think about people in terms of you stop, you lose the person in social constructivism. Sometimes you talk about discourses or you talk about how things are constructed. And I think, Social constructivism can also be very abstracted, or you can talk about people in terms of critical psychology and oppression and, and all of that kind of stuff. And I'm not saying that those things don't matter or those things aren't important, but sometimes those kind of abstractions are also a bit meaningless too. Mm. Think back to those, well, what does this actually mean for this child? You know, what where does it or this young young person or this this person? We we, we other people, we say they're young people or they're children, and that's fine, that's what we do. But actually, they're just people. They're people too. And they're people who want, mm. you know, to have a life that, that makes sense. I always, I always think, like, my son, who's in year four now, is, is doing this kind of stuff. And he, he talks about how he, he talked to me a little bit about how he, he didn't do very well in the test where he had to talk about personal pronouns in front of mm-hmm. adults and things like that. And, and, I, and I thought to myself, how would I feel if I was in that situation? I think I would feel really frustrated because it just seems, it just seems so meaningless. It seems to have no depth to it. It seems to be knowing what a fronted adverbial is, is in no way would make you a better writer. It mm. seems, you know, it would, be, it would be as bad as somebody coming up and talking to me in Chinese and not giving me any translations. It just, mm. it just doesn't make any sense. And, and a lot of the education system is, it, and it's not just the kids, it's the teachers as well. A lot of the teachers find what they are doing meaningless and mm-hmm. all of their meaninglessness is, 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 it affects how they relate to the kids. And that's actually quite key, I think, is, is that, that actually teachers are often being made to do stuff that they find abstract and meaningless. And, and, and so it's very hard for them to actually create meaning out of that for the kids, because that's what their job is, is to create meaning for the kids. Mm. And if 
if, if it seems you know meaningless to them and they feel like they don't have any control or any autonomy within their own destiny then they will pass that experience on because because they will not be able to sort of create meaning for those for those kids also so i i sort of you know i sympathize i i feel a great deal of compassion for teachers in the education system as much as i do the kids too because i think for them i think there's there's a lot of lot of meaninglessness um, mm for a lot of them I think that I think that although I think that being a teacher is a hugely meaningful job and I think that the job of actually teaching kids is incredibly fulfilling that, that there are a lot of initiatives within education that, that can really strip the kind of sense of meaning out of it um, again with good intentions yeah I think existentialism is can be helpful in that situation. It's like, how can we make this mundane, tragic task that you have to do meaningful in some way? And uh, what's yeah. it going to say about you as a person? And <laughs> I, I guess, you know, that's a, I guess a, a relatively recent example of that for me was like, you know, I, I went into my second year of training um, at first, being really kind of not resentful but just loathing the idea of writing statutory advice <laughs> but, but when that was going to come up <laughs> but um you know I, I i i went back to the frankel sort of idea of like well actually this is a opportunity to write something very meaningful for this person if i understand it as a representation of their sort of uh where they're projecting to and how the system can help them to do that rather than as an arbitrary bureaucratic task that I have to do whilst I'm thinking of doing things I'd rather be doing. Uh, and therefore it's, it is still difficult to, and you have to be disciplined about um, keeping that meaning there. Um, but I found it's, it's less of a chore now. And it's just, yeah. well, there's always high, higher purpose. You can always get through, like Frankel said, if you have a why, you know, you you have a how. Yeah. You know, if a person has a why, you can you can withstand any how. I think was how he put mm -hmm. it. But if you have a why um, in in writing, even though writing a statutory advice can be quite uh, can feel like quite a bureaucratic process, and I think a lot of that depends on how your authority mm. um, uh, designs the process or has has kind of shaped the process. Um, you, you, you can always revert to a higher purpose. Not everything you do, certainly not everything you can do can be intrinsically motivating and not everything you can do can be uh, immediately meaningful. So you can relate it to your goals or whatever. You have that kind of higher purpose in the same way that you would for, you know, when you, when you, um, you know, when you, when you, you, you do things for uh, your children or for your pets or whatever that might not be terribly pleasant or enjoyable. But what I, what I do think with, I think you're absolutely right, with psychological, uh, psychological advice um, work, EHC work, there is a risk that it can become, seem very, very meaningless when you can't connect with that higher purpose or you can't connect. And I think you're right that trying to, to discover your own, you know, discover, discover the person in that process mm. is a really important way. Of, of kind of framing that so so think about that and that's where you know 
I almost, interestingly, we often say, well, we need to make sure we have the pupils views. I feel quite divided about that because I sometimes think, actually, you know what, the pupils views should be threaded into the whole yep. advice. It should be essential, integral to the advice, even for young kids, but particularly for adolescents. Um, I do think that particularly when pre preparing for adulthood, you know, one of the initiatives that within statutory advice that I have been really, um, you know, kind of pleased with is, is that we've, there's been a kind of a drive to kind of link long-term outcomes to pupil and parent aspirations in a really meaningful way. And I think that we should really prioritise those in terms of what we're advising. I think, you know, we spend a lot of time in psychological advice focusing on remediation, on on um, making kids better at doing something. And I think that particularly for kids over, over the age of kind of 11, that we don't focus enough on, on in our advice and thinking about how are they going to get opportunities to actually do something they're good at? You know, that's yeah. important. They need that. They need that. But they find a lot of things difficult because they may have learning difficulties or social communication difficulties or whatever. But how can they get a chance? You know, that that, that is a need for them to be able to experience competence, experience that fulfillment um, of being useful or having some kind of higher purpose or being good at something. Um, or the, the three kind of Ryan and Desi, um, you know, uh, competence, relatedness and, and, and autonomy um, to be able to experience those things, that those are essential for children. And if we just think of psychological advice as a, as a kind of like as a means to just remediate problems the whole time, we're creating something that is essentially, I think it's problematic because nobody can 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 remediate you know nobody can work towards making themselves better at things they're bad at ad infinitum i mean obviously adaptation is the, is, is, is the other way of, of looking at it but i think that the idea of being able to experience competence do i would you know i do i always remember to put that in the advice that i write i hope i do mm -hmm. um, yeah. You know. yeah i mean i, I you know i I always try and capture that idea of projection of where this young person wants to go uh, and how school then can help them to do that um, mm. rather than, you know, school need this child to behave in a certain way or be a certain way in order for them to fulfill their needs. You know, that's yeah. not what education is, is about um, for me. And I think actually that just that very concept you're talking about there, Jeff, about asking a young person about what they'd like to get out of it you know that's that that, that must be you know that's transformative in itself you know I, I think I got through secondary school particularly by going with the flow and just cruising and just relying on the, the thrownness of my in, intelligence to get to get through things but it was after school and after university after I cruised through those things where that meaning wasn't there anymore it wasn't pre-made for me um so i found that kind of post 21 time very difficult because that was the first time where i think who am i in relation to my life because that's all been set out for me and i've just been able to do it beforehand um and and getting to that point was quite transformative but i think asking children and young people um and trusting that they they have a good idea and a realistic idea about this is is really important. Hmm. What was it? What was it about that? So that twenty-one was it? 
you talk about that as sort of coming out of university. Was it kind of just not knowing what you wanted to do with your life or the proneness? Yeah, I mean, I, I just kind of came out of university, no idea what I wanted to do. I'd, I'd done history um, at Exeter and that was, you know, a good experience, but it was, you know, three hours of talking to people and a lot of hours of playing computer games, really. Um, <laughs> and, and um, you know, playing guitar and that sort of stuff. But, yeah, I, you know, I, then I just went back into a school and very quickly became all the teachers I disliked because I didn't, it was, I didn't know what the meaning of it was other than just to reproduce people like me. And like, that's not what, uh, no one else in that school in Hampshire wanted to be another Tim Cox, I can tell you that. No, what, none of the kids, you mean? Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Wanted to be a, a Tim Cox. Yeah. I, think, I think that's, I mean, it, I, I'd be, I, I challenge you a little bit there. I'd be surprised if that were true, Tim, mm. that there were probably were some kids who, who, who maybe wanted to be a Tim Cox. Well, yeah, I, th I think, well, it, it was kind of made relatively clear to me after the interview process that we've, you're a male role model, you're somebody who's done well, yeah. and we'd like our, ki our kids to replicate this. But a year in, not even I wanted to be Tim Cox. Um, <laughs> but that's it. That's yeah. that's a very interesting way of putting it. You see, now we're down to the kind of now we're down to the kind of the this is the the experience of it all, the what it feels like to to just feel like you're you're kind of you know you're kind of dragging the the proverbial rock up the hill to use a massive yeah. existential cliche. Of course, yeah. That that it gets to a point where where not only. A, um, not only are the kids not buying what you're selling, you've stopped buying what you're selling as well. Yeah, yeah. And and, and I think that, I, I, I do think that the, 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 it's very easy to go, oh, well, it's a systemic issue. The system creates that by, um, by because you don't discover each other, you're not really discovering each other in a, in, in an education setting, you're not really discovering each other. You're, the kids are not really discovering you and you're not discovering them because what happens is the kids are kind of, you know, they have all these kind of meanings about you and you have all these meanings about them and they sort of, they kind of go off in different directions. As, mm. The other thing as well is that I think it's really difficult about teaching existentially. And I think this is a big thing. I think one of my kind of bugbears about the EP profession is sometimes I think that some EPs can be a little bit unfair to teachers and can be a little bit critical of teachers but um, because teachers don't hold their world views and don't think about kids in the same way but we also have to remember that we have the privileges that they that teachers don't have and one of which is that we don't have to be in front of a class to school every day with this belief that we're bringing this, this this beautiful gift of education every single day and then having that chucked right back in our faces. Mm. I mean, you know, I understand why kids chuck that back in your face. Uh, and, uh, but at the same time, or chuck back, back in teachers' faces because, you know, like I say, you're selling something you, they don't really, really recognise or want or understand. But at the same time, that is hugely dispiriting. And I, and I think teachers become the teacher, you know, in the same way that parents become the parent 
they didn't want to become. You become the teacher you wouldn't want to become because because your sort of all of your kind of your kind of noble um, intentions can often feel thwarted, not just by the kids but also by the by the management, by the systems, by the paperwork, by the the meaningless and you know particularly the paper the amount of assessment that teachers have to do mm. you know it's a treadmill of kind of you know marking books and so on and so forth and so and so it's difficult for you to really connect with what what who you are and what you're about and and to sell like i said earlier to sell that you know idea not that you're a salesperson as a teacher but you are essentially to convey that kind of love of learning that you, mm. you as an NQT, you've come to with, 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 with your dreams of, of bringing a love and learning to the, to the underprivileged children of, of, of wherever. Um, but, you know, that, that, that has been hollowed out for you as well through the process of the, the education system and, and also the responses you've, you've had from those kids. And it, and it leads to a lot of, it can lead, I think, to a lot of soul searching for a lot of teachers. Mm. And teachers have a choice, whereas, because obviously soul searching is uncomfortable. It's no. not a comfortable place to be, soul searching. And so often a lot of teachers will create ways of understanding that, that, that makes sense to them, make that experience make sense. So, oh, that kid's like that, or that kid chooses to behave in this way, or that kid is you know a bad kid although they people never say it you know that you can tell they're kind of thinking it. yeah um that it, it actually some of those responses are actually to they actually act as kind of defense mechanisms to to help continue the sense of meaning within that so if a kid's being really disruptive in your class and you spend ages preparing your lesson one of the ways to make that experience meaningful to you is to try and make decisions about who that kid is that enable you to um, enable you to cope with that rejection. Um, so I think you know I think these the, the existential issues are all kind of bound up in in not just what how kids you know existential ex, the, the 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 neurogenic um, neurosis of of, of of being a square peg in a round hole or being the a particular type of person in a, in a compulsory but i think you know just the idea is is important and it kind of comes back to the idea of kind of authenticity and helping people whether they're the children we work with or the teachers that we work with or the pastoral staff you know how can we be authentically with people um yeah and, and be comfortable and, and courageous uh in in that and have that sense that we're doing something that you know lots you know i always said that you know I went into school wanting to help, you know, the underprivileged children of Hampshire and ended up like Miss Trunchbull within a year. Um, but through doing that, I understood my teachers a bit more. I, 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 it was that thing you were saying about what Alan said about kind of being open to the learning. Once I opened myself back up to the learning and, and stopped I guess feeling so sorry for myself for for being myself, um, <laughs> then I was able to to shift away through things by, you know, projecting and making the everyday more more real and accepting proneness. Yeah. Miss Trunchbull thing, I think, is very is very interesting because because that's um, that's that's very interesting that you sort of 
you, you went into this kind of author, authoritarian place that you didn't like and you didn't like yeah. it, or you didn't like your teaching style but you kind of felt that you had nowhere else to go with that what what was it you see I find the concept of strictness in teachers very interesting because, mm. because I think that partly because when I was a kid, I, I really liked um, teachers that were strict um, because, because I, I kind of knew where I was with them. So, yeah. so, uh, so for me, I kind of, I felt like safer almost with teachers that were strict because I felt like, I was I wouldn't misbehave mm. if if the teacher was strict. It was just almost impossible for me to misbehave because I, because basically I guess you know, because you know, probably because I was scared to. Whereas if I was the teachers where the boundaries weren't clear, I'd I'd end up becoming a kid that I didn't really like sometimes and mess about and talk and doodle and not get on my work. So I actually like I like the security of a strict teacher. And I, th I think that um, it's very interesting because I think that, that kind of potent, I mean, in therapy, people talk about potency, mm -hmm. strictness, because you're obviously not strict if you're doing therapy, but they talk about potency sometimes. This idea that, that sometimes actually being, being quite, quite, quite kind of strong in a situation and, and actually having a really strong boundary can sometimes be helpful uh, in, in, in progressing a situation or progressing somebody's thinking uh, to actually give a potent message sometimes. And, 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 and actually, Frankel, Frankel was, gave lots of potent messages. He gives examples of him, you know, saying, why are you thinking like that, you know, um, and that kind of thing. But what was it? I often think that the Miss Trunchbull is often what lies behind that is is, is actually a, a fear that actually that you're not a fear of not being respected a fear of incompetence that, that, oh, yeah. leads to that. Mm -hmm. but actually kind of kind of that authority what we call in really ham-fisted terms authoritative teaching actually comes you can be quite strict but it come when it comes from a position of of confidence when mm -hmm. i see that's quite strict and comes from a position of love as well so i love these kids enough to take risks um, and 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 risk them kicking off at me by setting a really firm boundary um that 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 actually the kind of mistrunchable kind of like approach um comes from it isn't necessarily it isn't about boundaries it isn't about strictness it's often about fear of incompetence Mm -hmm. think about that does that does that yeah with your experience yeah. yeah fear of incompetence fear of lack of substance yeah very exposing being in a school yeah. at that at that point of my life um going in you know i didn't go in as a teacher i went in as a support member of staff but in a relatively responsible position um and it was just it was a baptism of fire really just in terms of yeah you know, yeah yeah it, it was really not because it was a tough school. It was a brilliant school. It's, it is still brilliant and wonderful in, in many, many ways. I just wasn't ready to go from a point of kind of drifting along and just ticking off things as I went to being in a place of competence and, and leadership um, because I was too up here. I was, in, I was abstractly intelligent 
but I didn't have the, the street smarts because I'd shied away from that uh, at school and just got through by just being able to be verbose, essentially. Yeah. So suddenly you're 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 a kind of yeah you're a kind of product of your circumstances and like I said, no, the kids aren't kids aren't buying that product and that's that's extremely threatening. Person, mm. if, if if you're being told, but but being incompetent is is essential on the journey to competence. And this is one of the things as a teacher, you're you're sort of you go in with this kind of view that you should be competent kind of from day one. And actually, um, the, 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 you have to be incompetent at some stage in learning any skill and learning to teach. You don't you can do teacher training, but no one can teach you how to how to be an authoritative leader of young people. Mm. That's essentially what you're doing in teaching is you're, you're, you're applying. Actually, you're applying leadership, like you said, in fact, you, you, you talked about leadership just then. But I'm sort of picking up on and I really like your honesty about the sort of I became Miss Trunchbull and I struggled with that I really I really like that because I think that um you know it's it's a refreshing thing to hear an EP say I think EP sometimes you know would be be nervous almost to talk about this shortcomings in their experience as a teacher but inevitably you have to be incompetent in any learning process so and, and, and going back to your mom and all is grist to the mill, what did you learn about that being Miss Trunchbull? What, did, what was your experience of that from those kids? What did you learn about that now as an EP reflecting back on it? What mm. did that teach you about how that, that, I mean, if we take as read what I'm saying about the, the Miss Trunchbull being coming from a position of fear rather than a position of confidence, a position of fear that your mm. will be undermined, that you're essentially not good at your job and you, you can't control the class. But what did you learn from that experience, that that, that, that yeah. relationship with those kids, being there in that moment? Uh, I think I had to, I, I, I learned that I had to drop the, the expert act. I wasn't an expert and, and start listening to other teachers and, and the children. I remember in one of my PSHE lessons, a, a girl, she must be in, in her mid-twenties now, but said, sir, you'd be fine if you weren't such a tight ass." <laughs> And I said, okay, uh, well, I'll, uh, we were doing two stars and a wish. And she was in year eight at the time. I said, okay, well, I'll work on that next year. And I yeah. said, okay, how do I work on that next year? So I went and observed, um, you know, other leaders in the school that were, did show leadership and had substance. And, you know, I, 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 I went and observed the head of sport and yeah. worked with him as a rugby coach for a year um, in, after school. Uh, and as a badminton coach, and I just learned from him that you know a lot of it is about steering from the, shepherding, steering from the back, and harnessing that energy rather than you know dictating from the front. Yeah, I think I think stru structure is really important as well. So I think that that things are more meaningful if they have a bit of structure to them. I think that things can become a bit like an existential discussion. They can become a, a discussion about existential philosophy. They can become a bit meaningless because the structure kind of dissolves. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's also true of education that, that, that you can do a lot with, that was one thing that I kind of learned, you know, from, you know, uh, was, was that you can do a lot with, with structure, that making sure you pace things and structure things properly. But you, 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 warmth gets you a lot. I think that that was the one thing that I learned was that warmth 
get you a long way. You can yeah. get a long way with warmth. That, that if you can be really warm, even when you're actually having to do something quite unpleasant, you don't like issue a detention or something like that. If you can do so in a way, say, I don't really want to do this. I've really tried. You know, we've kind of, I think we've run out of, we've run out of road here and it's got to be, you know, it's got to be, I'm really sorry. You know, you don't have to, you don't have to be a representative of the system. You can be an authentic person. You can, you can apologize. I mean, mm -hmm. Tom talks about that in the book. He says, he says, don't be afraid to acknowledge your errors. I mean, how comfortable are teachers, particularly young teachers with with acknowledging their errors? Mm -hmm. uh, don't be afraid to acknowledge your errors. Don't be afraid to acknowledge when you've made a mistake. I remember once um, misinterpreting the behavior of a young person and being a bit, being a bit, probably Mr. Dunchful yeah. with this lad. And, and then, and I apologized to him afterwards. And I said, look, I totally read that situation wrong. I'm really sorry. And actually, I didn't have any issues with that lad after, um, afterwards, interestingly. Um, or, or, or alternatively, um, you know, um, the difficulty as well is, is that there's a huge tension between understanding somebody and, 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 and expecting respect from them. And I think that we, we have to understand that, that, that school teachers are not therapists yeah. because you can't do group therapy and teach a history lesson or whatever at the same time. It's not, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's not possible. But at, at the same time, I think that, that you know, that, that, that if you take things personally, um, it makes it very hard to discover shared, shared meanings that, that, that rather than going like, you know, reflecting on well okay that kid didn't wasn't very nice to me but you know what what was that what's that all about it's, it's very hard to do that if you, if you take things personally and again that's something that initially yeah um uh, one of the things the other things that's interesting about school and it being an unnatural environment that i didn't sort of talk about was the other thing is that adolescence in in kind of throughout history have always been with adults I've always been with adults. Teaching is a rather, you know, teaching a group of 30 kids is really unnatural mm. in that sense too, in that one of the things I noticed about kids with challenging behaviour, they often behave much better with they're with a group and there's more adults in the group because they're around the adults. But actually, in a, if you look at communities where there aren't compulsory education, young people are often with adults. They're learning with adults. They're participating with adults. And that, again, that kind of one adult, 30 kids, it's a slightly unnatural kind of dynamic, really, I think. I'm not saying that there's such a thing as a natural dynamic, but it, it, it's not necessarily how human beings have done things. This is something that we as humans have created relatively recently. So, so you know, kids, kids, kids have kind of... Um, kids are thrown into this situation where they don't necessarily have... They're not part of the adult group. They're not part of the wider group. Again, they're kind of segregated. And so they create their own kind of subversive kind of meanings. Mm. And that, yeah, again, as a teacher, that's very, that's very threatening having that, that, that kind of power, you know, the, the, the trying to subvert your power dynamic. Um, it, it's, it's, it's scary. It's, it, it's, it's difficult. Mm. It's hard for anybody who's a lay person, I think, to really, really grasp. And I think it's quite hard for some people who don't do it anymore to grasp as well. Yeah. You know, you're dealing with a kind of a, a kind of a, uh, not a not a kind of community you're dealing with an us and them kind of situation a rather un unnatural us and them kids and teachers kind of situation mm. a community working together to learn or to to, to 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 do whatever it is that that community does yeah 
Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, just in terms, I think what I found early on in my career, and I've observed it since, and, and I'm very empathetic to it, is that sometimes when, you know, particularly with adolescents and teenagers, when it becomes confrontational and there's no clear right or wrong within the situation, but there's, there is a confrontation about it, um, I, I used to shrink behind the role that I had mm. and mm. and take my humanity away from the situation. Mm. Uh, and I, I learned to flip that and that, that was partly scaffolded and structured by um, the structure of restorative justice and restorative conversations, which, um, you know, brings the assumption that your community who are learning together and part of how you learn together is learning about confrontation and how you you learn from each other all of the time. Um, but that can be difficult to do authentically when it's part of, you know, I often hear about schools, oh, you know, we, we made him do a restorative and he didn't change his behaviour. Mm. Um, and it's like, well, that's not necessarily the, the reason why you'd have a restorative. The restorative is you think that he is a worthwhile part of your community and you want to make sure the community works better together and make sure that any harm is restored or repaired uh, dialogically or dialectically or however you want to put it but yeah that that just through I found out about restorative justice through working at a people referral unit but it really did change my perception of myself and and and, uh, um, and children with that as well yeah yeah so I mean so I've lost my train of thought a little bit there. You can definitely cut that bit. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> or you can keep it in, I don't care, actually. Um, so you talked about the you talked about that sort of expectation to be um, you had that expectation to kind of hide behind the system. Mm. Why do you think you did that rather than came at it more often because you talked about coming at things more authentically why do you think that because i think that's a useful question why do you think you did that yeah because i think i don't think i had i don't think i trusted my competency to push through and restore something no one had ever taught me how to do that um it was you must like, have had fallings out with your friends let me uh, that, you know. that's assuming i had friends um uh, well okay <laughs> I am, I am making some assumptions about you. But, uh, yeah, I mean... You seem, you seem like a relatively personable guy. You like music. Mm. must have played music, I think, you said. So, yeah. music, yeah, you played music. You must have, at some point, unless you were just a sort of a one-man Ed Sheeran-style outfit in, yeah. on the streets of Cardiff busking away, you must have had some interactions with, with artistic people who can be a little... Temperamental at times. Yeah, I think I'm a very agree agreeable person, so I just go with it. Um, and I think okay. I just, I think I lack that sense of self, and that that's why I shrunk behind the system. Was I didn't know who I was. So you didn't you didn't know who you were, and so and so the solution to that would be one of the things would be as a teacher would have been discovering a bit more about who you were as a person. Yeah. And also discovering a bit more about who these kids are. Yeah. Now, I, I worked as a, it was one of my, in my checkered history, I have to say that, you know, I'm always a bit, I'm always a little bit kind of like, ooh, I, I don't really like sort of um, the fact that um, I had an unconventional background and I sort of feel a little bit 
embarrassed about it sometimes the sort of the imposter syndrome comes so I was a supervisor um, and I was a peripatetic teacher but I never actually qualified as a teacher um, and in the cover supervisor role one of the things that I did that really really changed things massively with some kids because obviously that 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 cover supervisor role is a, is you are you are basically crowd control um, you know people they come in I had a job title which was learning manager and it sounded very inflated and I made and I made absolutely tons of mistakes yeah in that role it was literally one learning after one mistake after another after another after another and after another and um if perchance any child that was at that school who had me as a couple supervisor happens to listen to this podcast if i made a mistake with you i you, you have my sincerest apologies um i was working it out as i went along i didn't really know what i was doing but but the, the thing was yeah you know how to be a person but somehow you sort of forget how to be a person. Now, one of the things that happened was because I was a guitar teacher, they had this thing called Ace Week in the school that I worked at. And in Ace Week, you went and did various activities. And of course, um, so I, I did, the other thing was I was on, in, I, was, I ran the climbing club as well, the rock climbing club. So in the Ace Week, um, I, um, I actually got to do guitar rather than rock climbing because another teacher who was also a qualified instructor wanted to do the rock climbing and I really wanted to do some guitar. And loads of kids, that, that I found that I had regular because I had a regular cover I covered a whole timetable for about two terms I think it was um uh, it, really I was basically doing the teacher's job in a kind of ham-fisted way for for about two terms and um uh and um he said he says really sort of bigging up my my expensive background here um and 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 I did his ace week and in the ace week um I um taught, I taught several kids how to play guitar now I, w- I was I was much more competent as a guitar teacher than I was a school teacher as a guitar tutor. Um, I'd got a lot more experience of doing it, and 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 a lot more experience. I've been playing the guitar since I was 13 years old, so at that stage I had a lot to offer, a lot more to offer these kids. But there was one there was one girl in that I had in a regular class that I was that I was crowd controlling that I saw every you know twice three times a week. Um, who, who, who really disrupted um, uh, the, the, my lessons in inverted commas, and um, and when I, and I taught her how to play a Green Day song, I think it was mm. scratch. She'd never played anything before, and um, and and after that that Ace Week, I never had any more problems from her. She'd say she was a bit, you know, she'd say, "Oh, you're a legend, sir," in the corridor and stuff. Like that. <laughs> I never had any more problems from her. She, very interestingly, she, she used to call me Jeff all the yeah. time. She was obviously, no, and it's like, no, it's Mr. Morgan to you. And, uh, and she, she kept calling me Jeff. And I, and I kind of took it as a mark of disrespect. And I, 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 my meaning on that was a, one of disrespect. Very interestingly, she, uh, she, she said to me, after I did that guitar lesson with her, or the couple of guitar lessons, I can't remember if it was one or two, during a suite, I think it was just one, she said after me, she said, she said, you know, my dad's called Jeff. And and I and 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 I said, I said, oh yeah, is he a nice bloke? And she went, oh, he's a dickhead. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, oh, it's quite interesting. So even yeah. my name, I was kind of, I was kind of on the back foot a little bit there. <laughs> even my name, you know, potentially had meaning, you know, had had mm. kind of had some kind of transference value there, just get yeah. a bit avoided for a moment. And so um, but that 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 experience of being able to teach guitar one-to-one. And, and, and to give that kid who didn't really like their English lessons very much 
um, something that, that they could actually felt valuable and meaningful to them was tr- totally transformative, mm. transformative in terms of that relationship. And also transformed how I felt about that kid as well, because to me, that kid, my meanings and my beliefs about that kid totally changed. I saw a kid who didn't like a dad. I saw a kid who wanted to learn how to play the guitar, who liked, who enjoyed our time together. I saw totally, it was a whole different, a whole different kind of set of meanings. Um, and, and I do, you know, I think we, 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 we treat extracurricular activities as a nice to have, I think, in the, particularly in the state sector, not in the private sector. We treat them as a nice to have. And I think that is really, well, I think not all schools treat them as nice to have, but some, you can see when you go into a school, you know that there's a huge variety in, in how seriously extracurricular activities are taken and how much they happen. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. that oh, oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, and, and that, the, the, the extracurricular activities are not a nice to have. That the meaningful activity within that school is essential, essential. That, that, that you know that it's, it's obvious and it's basic and that we need to produce kids who are more than just units of units of learning it's that we need to produce kids that, 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 that actually come out of school thinking you know I got something out of that that meant something to me that, that you know and, and, and you know and we teach even the way we teach music we teach music in a very abstract way we don't teach kids what they want to learn we teach them what they want to learn and I would never, as a guitar teacher or as a guitar tutor or whatever you want to call it, as a peripatetic teacher, I would never have taught guitar like that. The first question I always asked was, well, what do you want to learn? What songs do you want to learn? And if they said, I don't know, I'd say, well, I like these, but if, if you don't like them, these because they're easy to teach, you know, so I teach them, you know, something like Smoke on the Water or uh, Peter Gunn or, um, you know, um, Time of Your Life by Green Day or... Um, um, other side of the world by Katie Tunstall, something like that, because they're quite yeah. easy tunes to teach. Beetle Bum by uh, not Beetle Bum, uh, Tender by Blur is another one that's really easy to teach. But then they go, you know, I'd say, tell me if you don't like that song, we'll do something. Mm. Tell me what you're listening to, um, because the, you know the, that for me, that's how I learned how to play guitar um, was by learning songs that I liked, and 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 um, um, you know, being able to have those kind of dark because the kids I said at the ace week I said to these kids what do you want to learn and they gave me they played the songs they wanted me to learn you know they they got YouTube videos out and said I want to learn that song and so mm. I own and I worked out the a, a kind of basic structure for each song if I could you know so stuff like Green Day and stuff like that was quite mm. easy and, and, and taught them stuff they actually wanted to learn and and that's so so powerful you know um but this this I, I feel that like in a lot of schools that's just not really interesting. Mm. to a lot of the school leaderships or that doesn't seem to figure within their their kind of that kind of not, not just teaching guitar because you can't you know, some kids aren't going to want to learn to play guitar mm. no but you know that that idea about yeah it's a nice to have it's like oh yeah we've got these extra you know um oh yeah well you know we've got rugby practice but you can't do that on a wednesday uh, so we're not going to bother trying to engage in extracurricular activities Things like sports, you know, I mean, sports is like, oh, well, he's not really very good at sports. So we're not going to try and find a sport that they, they like doing and enjoy, even though they're not good at it. Um, because, you know, we're, we're just going to say, no, you're not good at sport. That's not your thing. And, and, and then you, you miss out on that opportunity to do that. 
Um, and it seems to me that 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 extracurricular activities are, the more affluent the area and the more middle class the school, the more there is extracurricular activities. Yeah. I don't I don't and I think some of that's because the kids and there is a genuine issue there that, that kids don't participate in extracurricular activities. It's mm. like, well, why can't we do those during the school day? Yeah. Why can't you do them during the school day? Why mm. is it more important to do, you know, national curriculum thing? And I guess it comes down to the idea of the curriculum. Yeah. Do something that, that that actually learn something that actually matters to that child. They're still learning. They're still going to for, probably forget it in twenty years' time anyway. Whether they learn how to how to speak German or whether they they learn how, how to play Sweet Home Alabama, you know, they're probably going to forget how to do it. But, but but you know, is it going to make any difference to how they see the world? Yeah, yeah, and I think those following those interests and understanding how they relate to someone's life can give you um, the the schema of how that person likes to learn and, and what's going to sustain them um, over time. So, I mean, you know, one of the things I did as a head of year in my second year was like, okay, we can have an audit of everything that people like to do outside school and we're going to bring that and we're going to record that on the system so teachers can talk to them about things to do. So, you know, finding out that, you know, the child that I had every other week in detention was also, you know, far, you know, he wrote, he bred pigs as, as he's out, outside. You know, we had no idea that he did this, but then I, he was... He was I, I, would, I would want to know about that. I'd be like, man, tell me about pig breeding. Yeah. I want to know. Curiosity, curiosity. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, that really... Yeah. You, you asked me about my va- my va- values, you know, in yeah. your, your pre- thing, and I and I, I thought it's interesting because we talk a lot about values as, as EPs, and 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 I sometimes I'm a bit I'm a naturally a bit contrary sometimes, and I, I sort of go, oh, values. We're talking about values again, and I, I always think back to my my mum. Apart from all this grist and all, something my mum always mm. says: talk is cheap. She mm. thought, you know, we usually if I was trying to blab my way out of some <laughs> situation that I got myself, yeah. talk is cheap, or I hadn't done something. Talk is cheap. Show me with some action. But we talk about values, and I sometimes, you know, I think, well, it's all very well and good to talk about our values. What we really need to talk about is how did your values translate into action yeah. yesterday, the day before, um, uh, and how did, how did your values um, translate? And one of my, when I say one of my values is curiosity, and I guess there's a risk of, of saying that sounds nosy, but but being curious about about people is 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 so is so much a part of what being an ep and also being an educator should be about being curious and 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 i would love to i would love to uh, you know i I've, I've sometimes when i have meetings with kids when they start talking about their interests i, I have to really kind of watch i don't get sidetracked because i love hearing about mm. love hearing about their interests not because I'm I'm such a wonderful and noble person, but because I'm genuinely curious and, and about a lot of different things. The other thing you talked about is sort of being able to relate to them as well. I think there's always a risk of kind of doing that kind of hey, I'm trying to relate to you on your level kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I remember working I remember working with a kid in a pro, and and people said to me beforehand, they said, look, you're probably going to find this kid hard to work with. He's a bit, you know, he's a bit, you know, he doesn't like meeting people and talk about feelings and that kind of stuff. And 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 he was quite kind of disruptive to start off with the meeting. And he went and he and he put a he put a song on that. He put a song on his phone. He was playing with his phone, and, and he, he put a song on, which was which was um, by a band called Bring Me the Horizon, which is a metal band. And um, 
and, and he went, I bet you don't know what that is, do you? And I said, yeah, it's Bring Me the Horizon. And he went, and he looked at me like, how does this old git know what, <laughs> you know, this young, this young sort of metalcore band who are very loud and noisy, fast and aggressive. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I listen to this kind of music. And, you know, that authentic interpersonal connection. Yeah. If you can find it, I know it's difficult, it's difficult when you've got 30 kids to find authentic connections with all 30 of them in the course of a term or a year or even a whole school, you know, experience. But, you know, those, those things can be, can be very, uh, those can be real game changers to use as a cliche. It can be real game changers, that authentic yeah. connection. Oh, you like, yeah, oh, you like, you like metal. I like metal. I thought boring old gits like you in cable net switches didn't listen to the stuff that, that I like, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, <laughs> it was a transformative moment. Um, that curiosity, being able to exercise that curiosity. And I think, again, teachers don't get chances to exercise curiosity because then the curriculum often doesn't allow them to. It, mm. it, doesn't say to you, it doesn't say to them, you know, get up and exercise curiosity about your students. It says get up and teach them how, how to how, how to how to do a fronted adverbial or how to, you know, how to do columnar addition or, you know, all of these things are quite simple. And the reason that we, we lose touch with them is because the systems we create for ourselves, you know, going back to McGill's Chris, are abstracted. So those, we create systems for ourselves which are very much based on abstracted knowledge rather than experience, experiential knowledge. Mm. Um, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that abstracted knowledge, but it's about balance, isn't it? I think. Yeah. yeah. About balance. Because abstracted knowledge is good. I mean, I love a good quiz. You know, don't <laughs> don't, don't worry, you know, you get me get me on a quiz and I'll show you some abstracted uh, so, 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 some uh, left hemisphere verbal um recollection kind of stuff, you know. Mm. But um but, but it, 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 we're very focused on that in the education system. Um, and uh, and that is the t- because that is the tangible, observable product of what we produce. That is yeah. our outcome. So what you observe, you will, you will work towards. And so our tangible outcome is this knowledge, exams, show us this, show us what you can, can remember, what you can learn. And, and, and so as the teachers are trapped in that system, I think as much as as often as much as kids yeah teachers don't rebel though as much uh yes or they just rebel in different ways subversive Mm. ways yeah Yeah. i I mean i I, i'm noticing the time and i'm thinking as we kind of come towards the end of this conversation we've had a very kind of broad reaching uh conversation about adolescence and working with teenagers and the difficulties of being a human and being a teacher at the same time uh, and I'm wondering if there's anything that you think that you know as EPs that we could be doing or people working in education generally that can bring that existential understanding of what it is to be a human to to bear in education even if you have to do it in uh, little bits of time and extracurricular time. Um, so I, I wrote down a set of reflection questions mm. um, um, I wrote down a set of reflection questions, which I'm um, sorry, did I disappear for a second there? No, 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 you're still here. Um, the, um, so the, a teacher, an EP or a teacher or a mentor or anybody can ask when working with a teenager. So those, these, this is not an exhaustive list. These are just the ones I came up with after you sent me that email. So 
because I've been, you know, I've got a really thoroughly prepared thesis here, Tim. Yeah. Um, do they have a chance to experience competence from day to day? I think competence is really, really important. Mm-hmm. I think we, 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 we're constantly, you know, there's nothing wrong with incompetence. You have to experience incompetence to become competent. Mm-hmm. You can't fake competence. That's the thing. I, I'm always a bit nervous about kind of saying use praise. I'd say use praise, but use it realistically because if you if you use praise inauthentically, if you tell someone they're brilliant when they're not, they'll yeah. know it and it will smack of inauthenticity. And then you're not being, like you say, not being a person. You're being inauthentic. And inauthenticity yeah. is the is is, is I think is deadly in relationships in the long term. Mm-hmm. You, yeah. if it, I, and I think young people, no matter whether they have learning difficulties or whatever, they can smell inauthenticity. Yeah. Um, so do they have a chance to experience competence from day to day, a meaningful competence? Do they have a chance to do something that matters to them, make choices and decisions, so um, autonomy? Do they have a chance to do something that matters to or influences someone else? Mm. Do they have a chance to be a, you know, we, ask, we talk to kids, we don't say about being good or not being good, but do they have a chance to practice being good? Do they have a chance to do something that contributes to their school community in a meaningful way? Do they have a chance to, to actually be somebody, be somebody who helps other people? Mm-hmm. You know, um, we um, do. They have a chance um, to experience a sense of belonging or contribute to a shared purpose. Do they have a chance to work towards a higher goal that matters to them? Mm-hmm. And, and what sense do they make of the things that happen to them every day? Have we asked the questions about? What's, what senses are they making of, of the things that happen to them? Have we asked the right questions? Have we, have we, I mean, I know, yeah, have we used drawing and so on to enable us to, to, to ask those questions in a way that makes sense to those kids? The, the other thing I, I think um, about EP practice, um, uh, it, it, you know, we talked about setting outcomes based on meaningful goals um, rather than goals that are intrinsically defined or based on remediation of deficits. Mm-hmm. So building on strengths, building on interests, particularly in post-16 advices and the PFA advices preparing for adulthood, but also in terms of work with any, any kid, really, even, even little kids. Um, I think coming back to person-centered approaches is really key. So uh, the ones that I always come back to, I, I come back to Frankel a lot. Um, I, I use personal construct psychology a lot um, in my in interviews with, with kids. I, I try very hard to do you know, drawing and talking rather than cognitive assessment, if I can, if I can get away with it, um, <laughs> you know, and, and, and I try very hard not to use standardised cognitive assessment, but I, I, I do, but I, I think that um, I find dynamic assessment leads to more meaningful exchanges. I'm, I'm sure, I mean, you probably, yeah. probably, I'm getting the feeling you might be with me on this one a little bit. Yeah. Um, use, I use some, um, I use another thing I really like is, is, is Cartman's drama triangle, which is kind oh. of, I'm going a bit off field a little bit. Have you ever come across Cartman's drama triangle? I haven't, no. I, I love Cartman's drama triangle because it talks a lot about the roles that we play. So we talked about being authentic, um, the roles we play in dramas and trying to watch that we don't end up playing a role. So Cartman talks about the rescuer, the persecutor and the persecuted or the victim. Yeah. And he talks about how, that if you play those roles, you get caught up in cycles of drama. And that actually mm-hmm. using the drama triangle helps us to reflect on, there's also the bystander, but the bystander's not in the drama triangle. They're just, they've opted That's out. Nice, yeah. And that, that, that you can be, you know, that you can be, you can be responsive without being a rescuer. You can be yeah. potent without being persecutory, that you can be vulnerable without being a victim. 
Mm-hmm. And, and, and I, I find that really useful. Often, if I get myself in a sticky situation, I go back to Cartman's drama, drama triangle, um, which was um, somebody I knew called Gordon, who who was a, a, a trainer and psychotherapist, was a big fan of her. And we mm-hmm. go back to what would Gordon would say, and he'd say, "Ah, the drama triangle." Um, so uh, about being authentic rather than getting caught into dramas. Mm. Um, that, that, that sounds a bit really be really helpful, generally. But working with teenagers, perhaps trying to navigate social media for example um you know yeah yeah and those conversations can get run away with us i mean you talk about bad faith talk about sartre and bad faith you know you know i feel really like out on a limb saying you don't have to listen to those messages people will there will always be people who will troll you but you don't Mm. have to you do have some choice in the matter i don't i don't know i think other people will disagree very strongly with me on this you do have some choice in the matter you know, you don't have to. Do, I know that social media is much more. I mean, it's easy for me to say that because social media is much more integral to the lives of kids than it was than it is for me as a mm. as a forty two year old man. But um, um, you know, it's you do have a choice. You do have choice not to not to, to be a victim. You do have a choice. You, you do have. You know, and that's you don't discount the, the pain of, of of feeling a victim, or, or 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 you don't you don't like throw that out the window and say that doesn't matter. Mm. But you, you do. You know, one of the things I think as well is that we're we're in this kind of deterministic drift um, as a profession, where on the one hand we talk a lot more about neuroscience and we talk a lot more about you know the kind of kind of the machine essentially of the, of the brain we even talk about the brain all the time um and rather than the mind we don't talk about selfhood and mind so much anymore we talk a lot about brains and and, and brain systems and all this kind of stuff um and i'm not going to go on to the ontological gap between the brain yeah. and the self because that's that's we're going to be here we're going to be here till <laughs> tomorrow morning i guess yeah. but you know, but the other thing, on the other hand, when we talk about social constructivism, we talk about constructs, we talk about language, and actually language, what people say and what people do are not the same thing. Yeah. And so as EPs, we have a responsibility to, to, to live authentically and to live by what we, so, so if we, you know, if, we, um, if we're doing a piece of private work, for example, and somebody says, please, will you do a cognitive assessment? <laughs> I don't know, this is, this one's going to come back to bite me someday and you don't think that's the right thing to do you know stand by you live authentically and say i don't think this is going to tell me anything about this child Mm -hmm. that's going to help me to understand them other than what they're not good at maybe i suppose or what they find difficult which i suppose might be useful but is it going to help me to understand them as a person yeah um you know and also remember that that I, i think the other thing is remembering that paradoxes and tensions are everywhere and you have to one of the things that Andrew Richards, who's the course director at Exeter, talked to me about is you have to be comfortable with ambiguity. And I really take that on board. You know, I really took that on board. You know, mm. And I, I hope that, um, you know, that that's something that that I can do, I think, is accept that some things are not entirely straightforward. They're not issues of right and wrong or or, or, or kind of good and bad. They're issues of think that's you know things that put simply things are complicated and we need to understand them better rather than make judgments about them we need to mm-hmm. explore them rather than say well this is this is bad or this is good and i think eps can fall into their own traps of of kind of uh, uh, of, of, of judgment that are different from 
from teachers teachers trapped to judgment are all about chosen behavior and mm. and um, consequences and all that kind of stuff and e e teachers eps we have those traps too they're all about you know um kind of um you know that they're all about what the values that we hold but actually some of those things are not straightforward we have to accept that at times these, these things are ambiguous they're not straight um talking of humanity and, and humor yeah uh, yeah i mean i think it's a really kind of nice point to kind of start to bring our kind of conversation to the conclusion that you know many of um the ideas we might wrestle with as eps are sincere and difficult and challenging and abstract sometimes but actually centering ourselves in, in humanity and understanding our existential you know goals and values and all those things can be really helpful to cool. and, and simple and straightforward at the same time that, that mm. how's you like that for a paradox i'm sure heidegger could have come up with some kind of portmanteau german word for that yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 there's an everydayness to to what we do and and that's why it's helpful and useful to others so i guess um you know those would be my sort of concluding remarks would you offer any concluding remarks yourself um I, I i'm sure i will think of them um within kind of 20 minutes of having ended this conversation <laughs> so um uh, i mean thanks very much for uh, an opportunity uh, for me to uh, to to talk about stuff that i find interesting enjoy the sound of my own voice for uh, a period of time <laughs> well, it's been fascinating it really has okay. Jeff.